Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is part two of episode 44 in the book of John entitled Feed My Sheep, where we discuss John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, once again, it's hard to believe, but now we have arrived at the final episode in the book of John. It's been quite the journey. And I want to ask you the question we ask every time as we begin our discussions, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, it's a very exciting uh, book that we've been through. We've been studying and it's been a marvelous study. To some degree, we've already come to the climax and the purpose of the book at the end of chapter 20, uh, which we'll talk about again today. Um, so this seems almost like an appendix or an addendum, but it's a very important one because it really has to do with reinstating Peter to his apostolic ministry and embracing him with the kind of authority I think the Lord wanted him to have going forward. So it's uh, also post-resurrection uh, appearance. So Jesus gives more, yet more evidence of his resurrection. So uh, a lot of good things in this chapter. Very good. Well, I'll go ahead and read the entirety of the chapter, John 21, 1 through 25, to set the stage for our conversation today. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So as we move from this initial scene of uh, the catch of fish and breakfast on the shore, uh, what's the significance of verses 15 through 23 mm -hmm. in the history of the church? Well, this is, this is the reinstatement of Peter after his threefold denial. And Jesus uh, predicted that night, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he did. And you know, you could easily argue that he is disqualified from apostolic ministry at this point, disqualified from being a leader. Mm -hmm. He is supposed to stand up boldly and testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And here he is. He denied even knowing him. Never heard of him. Mm -hmm. He called on curses on himself if he knew Jesus. But 40 days later, oh, I do know him, actually. Forget, forget that. Forget that night. I do know him. And he is Lord, and he's been raised from the dead. He's just discredited. And, and he starts with, I think it would start with in his own mind. It's like, I'm not fit to be an apostle. I don't have the right to do this. And so uh, to me, this is actually an incredibly hopeful encounter here. This is Jesus showing his graciousness and kindness. You know, we know that people struggle with sin. We know that, that men struggle with a lot of different sins, men in the ministry. And we talk about being disqualified from ministry. Here's a man that ostensibly should have been disqualified and Jesus more or less rather rapidly reinstates him. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where I want, I want to uphold the need for pastors to be holy, vital to, for them to be holy, but also the need for the church to be gracious and to allow men to be restored and renewed in a ministry. You think about the, 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 uh, the man who was disciplined in 1 Corinthians 5, and then Paul commands that he be reinstated in 2 Corinthians 2, lest Satan have an advantage, for we're not unaware of his schemes. Satan's schemes would be to not let this man get reinstated. That's different than we would really think. Usually we think, oh, Satan's schemes is to be loose and, and liberal and, mm -hmm. and, and let people just lurch into sin. Well, you can also be so legalistic and harsh and sharp that you have no hope of, you, you have no hope of salvation now that yeah. you've committed this sin. Yeah. You're done. Hmm. So there's there's a balance there, but I think it's just so beautiful how the Lord reinstates Peter after that threefold denial. Yeah, this is a beautiful passage, and I'm looking forward to walking through it here. Mm -hmm. So after they'd finished breakfast, Jesus looks to Peter and says, "Do you love me more than these?" Mm -hmm. What what did Jesus mean by more than these? I don't know. Uh, there's one of two possibilities: more than more than the disciples, or more than the fish. Um, and the fish would seem ridiculous, but it could be, do you, are you willing still to leave your life of, of fishing and be a fisher of men? Do you love me more than you love this life? That's a possibility. Or it could be, do you love me more than the other disciples do? 
you know, uh, because he said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So he really positioned himself as the foremost of all the apostles. So do you love me more than these? In the end, I really don't know for sure. It's possible either way, but it doesn't much matter. The more than these is not as important as the question, do you love me? And he says it three times. So that's huge. Why would Jesus ask Peter three times if he loved him? And what does Jesus connect to Peter's love for him? Well, uh, at the, at the, uh, just at the simplest point, Jesus' arrest and trial was the lowest point of his life as far as Peter knew. It was the, the low point, the most horrendous trial he had ever gone through, Jesus, in front of Peter. And Peter fled away, ran away, didn't help him at all, abandoned him in his moment of need. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. You're my friends. Peter didn't act like a friend that night. He saved his own skin, denied even knowing him. So I think with the issue of love, he's zeroing in on the question The fundamental issue, and Wes, I think we all need to think of this way. I think we should always think in both senses in terms of sin. Sin is always a failure of faith, and it's always a failure of love. We didn't believe, and that's why we sinned. Um, What do I mean by that? Faith is the eyesight of the soul. You didn't act as if the holy God was watching you. (laughs) You forgot about him. So it's a failure of faith. Secondly, or even more importantly perhaps, you didn't love him. He commanded you to do or not to do something and you disobeyed him. And so he said, if you love me, you'll obey me. So it's fundamentally a failure of love. Beyond that, above all things, Jesus in his restoration, in his salvation of us, is restoring us into a love relationship with himself and with God. It's not just believe in in my father, believe also in me. It's love my father and love me. So now he's looking him in in the eye and saying, do you love me? And he's zeroing in on that issue. So it's, to me, it's very poignant. Yeah. Each time when Peter responds, Jesus then gives this instruction. What does Jesus mean by feed my lambs or tend my sheep? Yeah. So this is the number one thing I think of every Sunday morning before mm-hmm. I go to preach. I'm a preacher. I get up in front of, ordinarily, we're in COVID now, but ordinarily um, preach you know, to as many as 500 or more people and I get nervous. Uh, I feel it's not debilitating because I've done it so many times, but it's it's there. And um, inevitably the command, feed my sheep helps me. It's all you need to do. Just get up and give my people the food of the word. Their faith needs a meal. If they don't keep feeding on God's word, they will cease believing because faith comes by hearing and it's nourished and sustained by hearing. So they have to keep hearing God's word. My job, according to the chief shepherd, as an under shepherd is feed my sheep. So, you know, we've got this rhythm of, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. All right, then feed my sheep. And he doesn't use the word feed every time, sometimes it's tend, but care for my flock, care for my sheep. And then it goes also to the sheep and the goats. When Jesus returns, he's gonna divide all people into two categories, sheep Mm. and goats. And the basis of the division is what you did to his people, what you did to his people on earth. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Conversely, you didn't. 
He, the second coming is precipitated by the Antichrist and his forces pounding on God's chosen people. He won't take that. He's going to step in and defend and protect them. So fundamentally, and then author to Hebrews, Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your love and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. It all comes down to that. Are you helping my people? Are you feeding them? Are you caring for my people? That's love for me. If you love me, you will take care of my people. Hmm. That's uh, what it comes down to. And so he's calling on Peter, who would later write First Peter, as an under-shepherd, as a shepherd under the chief shepherd to shepherd the flock. Yeah, so let's talk about that just a little bit. What's the relationship between this command to Peter and the statement that Jesus is the good shepherd yeah. in John 10? So uh, we are uh, weak, stupid. Well, I think we said but there are various adjectives that help us understand the whole sheep metaphor. Sheep are weak, slow, and delicious. Okay. <laughs> So, I mean, you, it's like evolutionary disadvantages. Sure. <laughs> You're yeah. going to get slaughtered. <laughs> All right, so you need a shepherd. You need mm. a shepherd to lead you out and bring you back in and keep you safe from the wolf and feed you. So this is that John 10, that good good shepherd image. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, I will not be in want. So, uh, but what's interesting here, he's telling another one of his sheep to be a shepherd. So we're both sheep and shepherds at the same time if we're mm. pastors. Mm. And even if we're not, we're supposed to watch over one another in brotherly love in this church, so we're supposed to be shepherding each other yeah. in every respect. So the chief shepherd is calling on us to be under shepherds caring for the flock. Now for Peter in this moment, what is his emotional response to this series of questions and why do you think this hurts him so much? Well, it openly says, the third time he said, do you love me, Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt. I do want to uh, note in the Greek, the, the word for love changes from agapao to phileo. I don't make much of it. I, I really probably am going to go with a synonym kind of feel here, even though I know C.S. Lewis did the four loves. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, do you love me in an unconditional way like God loves? All right, fine. If you don't, then will you at least love me the way a friend loves kind of thing? Like he kind of lowers the standard. I tend to read this more like they're synonyms. Love like it is in the English. It's just mm. love and love. So um, fundamentally, he's zeroing in on Peter's love for him. And Peter must have felt deeply guilty for what he did. Um, he went outside and wept bitterly. When Jesus looked at him, when the rooster crowed, he looked at him. And he felt so devastated and so guilty. Mm. And he wept bitterly. And that, that bitter weeping is still there. It's not been, been restored. We, we've got something to talk about. And so we're supposed to confess our sins to the Lord. We're supposed to go to him with it and talk to him about it. So this is, they're having this conversation. Now, it's not the way we would imagine. He doesn't say, now, Peter, that night you denied me three times. He never brings it up. Hmm. He just goes to this issue of love. And it says plainly, Peter was hurt. This is really interesting. It's very interesting. Jesus' willingness to hurt Peter. Now, we must think that the pain is not the end goal, but a means to an end. Mm. I want what happened, what you did, I want it to hurt you, just so that you don't do it again. Mm. And he's gonna say why, because he's going to get arrested later in life, he's going to face his own death. Don't do what you did that night, don't do that then. Die well, die courageously as a witness for Christ. That's gonna be your lot, you're going to get arrested, we'll get to that in a minute, but fundamentally, 
love me straight through that. And it was hurtful, it's painful. So I think sometimes, you know, it says in Psalm 139, 23, 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, we have to imagine that when we lay under the great physician, he's going to start poking and prodding and there's going to be some pain, which is amazing. Because I've been saying for the last two or three days as I'm memorizing the Gospel of Mark and I'm saturating myself in Jesus' healings. It's a river of healings all the time. Healing, healing, healing. And I started thinking about the difference between Jesus' healings and that of human physicians. And there are two things that, that human doctors do that Jesus never did in his healings. There are two P words. There's process and pain with human healings. There was neither one with Jesus. No process. Instantaneous healings. Immediately, with a word, the demon would leave. With a word, the fever would leave. With a word, with a touch, the leper was cured immediately, and no pain ever. Hmm. There's no indication of any physical pain ever with any of Jesus' healings, ever. But here we have emotional pain, psychological pain. Hmm. This is a different kind of healing he's doing. He's got to bring him through. So he was hurt, hmm. and sometimes we need to be hurt. Search me, O God, and know me, and it's going to be it's going to be hurtful. And we need to lament. We need to, like James says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Sometimes you just need to lay before God and cry and say, I have betrayed you or I have denied you. I have violated my conscience. I have sinned and I'm sorry. Well, it's important, like you said, because Jesus seems to be preparing Peter for what's ahead. What does Jesus prophesy about Peter in verse 18 and how does it relate to this cycle of questions? So he predicts that he will lose personal freedom and he will be, I mean, this is the language of being arrested and the lang- language of execution. He's, he's being, he doesn't say, but he says, you're going to be led where you do not want to go. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, you got yourself ready, you went everywhere, wherever you want. You're autonomous. You were, you were a man. You could just go where you wanted. But there's going to come a time you'll lose your freedom. So that's being arrested. And it implies execution. And, and John openly says this is the death by which he would glorify God. So he is getting him ready. Now, again, how is it relevant? It's completely relevant. Why did he three times deny him? He was afraid to die. Hmm. It's just like Hebrews 2. Men who all their lives were enslaved to their fear of death. Jesus wanted his apostles to be liberated from fear of death. Don't be afraid to die because hmm. they're going to die and Peter himself would die. How does John comment on this prophecy in verse 19? And Mm. you made allusion to this earlier, but do you think Peter was already dead when John wrote this gospel? I think so. I think he knew this is the death by which Peter would glorify God. Mm. And uh, church history tells us he was crucified upside down. He would not allow himself to be crucified right side up as a Jew and not a Roman citizen. Uh, He he could not uh, uh, avoid crucifixion. Paul was beheaded, it seems, church tradition gives us that Paul was beheaded because as a Roman citizen, they would never crucify a Roman citizen. It's a horrible death. But Peter was just a Jew, not a Roman citizen, and so he was crucified, and he said, well, then let me be crucified upside down. But I love that statement, the kind of death by which he would glorify God. Now, that's powerful. That's the whole point here. Right. You can die, but in such a way that you don't glorify God, begging for your life, pleading, denying Jesus, selling out your hidden brothers and sisters mm-hmm. or selling out the scriptures where they're hidden, you know, when there weren't infinite copies of them. You know, that, those were people that would betray, give over the scriptures to the Roman authorities, whatever, because they were afraid to die. That doesn't glorify God. And then they'll just kill you anyway. Mm-hmm. So they betrayed everyone, now they'll just kill you. Um, and so that's craven and, ter- and, and a terrible way to die. Instead, Peter would die in such a way that would glorify him. I'm not afraid to die. Yeah. 
Um, I'm standing firm on the rock. So it's a beautiful statement, uh, the kind of death by which he would glorify God. You think that's the sig significance of that follow me when it comes to the revelation that Peter would die violently, yeah. that he's he's following Jesus yeah. even in the manner by which he would yeah. die and glorify Deny him. yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now Jesus was done with it. Mm. He had fought the good fight, mm -hmm. finished the race and kept the faith. Jesus had. He had, he had finished. Father, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Yeah. He's done with the cross, but we're not. Mm. And so uh, we still have a journey to travel. Follow me, he said. Now, what is Jesus saying to Peter and really to all of us about each other's callings in verses 20 through 23? Yeah. So Peter uh, turned and said, Yo, what about him? What about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved? So it's interesting that John's kind of just kind of trailing there, kind of overhearing the conversation, you know, and all that. Um, and I don't know what's in Peter's mind. It's like, maybe he's just curious. It's a curiosity factor. Mm -hmm. Tell me what John, what's going to happen to John or why do I have to die? What about him? Yeah. Could be uh, that sort of sense. But he just wants to know what is God's plan for John. And it seems like you could really summarize the answer as something like none of your business. <laughs> I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it seems like, you know, yeah. if I want him to remain until I return, then what's that to you? You follow me. In other words, you do what you're told to do. Leave it to me to decide what somebody else's calling is. Yeah. It goes to Romans 14 also, uh, which uh, Paul wrote, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, that man gets his orders from his master, and that's Jesus. So you don't get to intervene and, and say, what's going on with him? How come he this or that? It also goes to that kind of discontent we have or whatever where God blesses somebody else's ministry or gives someone else some honors or whatever that we don't have. It's like, well, what's that to you? You follow me. You do what I've told you to do. Yeah. Now in verse 23, John seems to also want to guard against this misunderstanding of what's happening. Like, look, this isn't what Jesus was saying. He wasn't saying that he wouldn't right. die. He was just saying, you know, if it was the case that he wanted him to be alive until Jesus returned, yeah. what's it to you kind of uh, yeah. thing. Uh, what do we learn there about careful Bible exegesis? Yeah, so, um, you know, look carefully at the words. That's what John's doing here. Now, he's there's a special, unique window of circumstantial difficulty for John. I think it's that he's writing the Gospel of John in a very old age. And all of the other apostles, if church tradition is true, have died martyrs' deaths. Maybe he's even in exile in Patmos, we don't know. But he's like, now you may think that I'm gonna be here until Jesus returns, all right? But he didn't say that. He didn't say I wouldn't. He didn't say either way. It was a, it was a, an illustration of the sovereign freedom of King Jesus to do whatever he wants with mm. his servants, that's all. He didn't say either way whether I would be here or not at the second coming of Christ. He just said, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? Why does he do that? Because it's possible, John doesn't know either, but it's possible that he will die before the second coming. He doesn't want his disciples' faith to be shipwrecked when that mm. happens. Now, in verses 24 and 25, John concludes the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, in verse 24, who is the we in this verse? What do you think of the theory that someone other than John maybe wrote verses 24 and 25 or even this whole chapter uh, 21? I don't know. I understand why we would think it. 
I think clearly the last, very, very, very last section of Deuteronomy was written by somebody other than Moses because the account of Moses is burial. So I'm thinking (laughs) that's That's no doubt about it written by somebody other than Moses, (laughs) all right? So this is not so clear. I mean, John could be saying we, meaning we all the the disciples. Um, So I'm not willing to say either way. I don't think Mm. there's any proof positive. But um, he does identify himself as the disciple who had that conversation, the disciple whom Jesus loved was the one who wrote this gospel. So we have clear indication of that. Uh, And then by process of elimination, we find out that his name is John because this important man, John, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is never mentioned in John. (laughs) So we think uh, that's how we figure it out. And so he's the one who wrote down, and we know that his testimony is true. It's just that validation of the eyewitness account. Yeah. So... How does John conclude the gospel, and what can we learn about the Word of God as a whole as we conclude this final chapter? Okay, so the, God's Word is perfect, but but not comp- not comprehensive or exhaustive. There are many, many things that God did that are not written down in hmm. the Bible. And there are many things Jesus did that are not written down in the Gospel of John. That leaves the open door for the book that I wrote on heaven, which says, in heaven, you'll learn them all. Okay? Um and, and I think that's so exciting. It just shows that there's a limited amount of bandwidth that we have of learning the past, of history. We have enough. We have enough in the Bible mm-hmm. to bring us to saving faith and yeah. bring us through our lives fruitfully. We have enough in church history for whatever we need for fruitful, mature ministry. But not everything's written down. Uh, the, the historical accounts are limited. So uh, I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to really start learning church history and, and, frankly, the rest of the story of Bible history, too. Like, well, what are they, John? Yeah. Uh, what are the other <laughs> like, things? I want to know did? what that I want to know them all. I'll tell you That's the other awesome. things. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Andy. What final thoughts do you have for us on this passage, really on, on the book of John yeah. as we conclude? What an exciting, thrilling study that we've been through um, and I think, you know, recent studies I've done on Athanasius and his defense of the incarnation just show me how important it is for us to have a robust Christology, a robust doctrine of Jesus as God. And there is no book in the Bible that's so strong on the deity of Jesus as the Gospel of John. The book of Hebrews is close, but John is greater. And the, the mighty deeds, the mighty words, and it all comes down to this, we all of us, all of us underestimate Jesus. We underestimate his infinite greatness and majesty. And John wrote his gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we would have life in his name. Well, life isn't just a matter of of dead now alive, but it's also a a quality of life and and an expansive quantity of life and fruitfulness, and this all comes from Jesus. Jesus is our life. He is our glory. He is everything. So I would say, go back over John's gospel and saturate your mind in it and find out just how great Jesus is. That's what life really is. Mm. Well, this has been episode 44 in the book of John, and it really has been our joy to walk with you through this rich book. We'd encourage you, as Andy just said, to go back and listen to episodes you missed as you seek to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures and the power of God. We look forward to having you join us for more Bible study podcasts in the future as well. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.